Welcome everybody to Hopeful Majority number three. I'm Manu Meal, and today's question is, why is it so hard to accept the flaws of America and critique them while also appreciating America's greatness and believing in it so that we can build a better country, the best democratic experiment possible. As always, you and I first answer that question, and then we bring on an amazing guest to have a deep, insightful, and nuanced conversation. Today's guest is going to be Professor Jeremy Suri, Distinguished Professor of American History at UT Austin. If you missed last week's episode, remember we come at you every week Apple, YouTube, Spotify, wherever you get your content, because we're building a hopeful majority. And before we get into it, I always like to remind ourselves, why are we here? It's because you and I believe that we need to put aside our politics for a higher calling. And that higher calling is the American experiment, the most ambitious experiment that requires us to be tolerant, open-minded, to critique each other's ideas, to challenge each other, but to respect each other's stories. Most importantly, we got to support the show because we have to build nuance and fight outrage. That's what most Americans want. So let's get on with episode number three. Today's conversation is going to be about the logo of the show, the design of the show. If you are listening to this on Spotify or Apple or anywhere where you get your podcast, but not watching this, you'll notice that if you go to the YouTube version of the show, you'll see that there's a giant American flag behind me and that the logo of the show is based around America. Now, when we first designed this and when I was first thinking about what to make the show represent, everybody I spoke to said, Manu, don't put a giant American flag up it's going to immediately alienate half your audience. And it will probably increase the other half of your audience, that it's a symbol of polarization and division in our society. And I thought about taking that advice. And then I said, well, you know, if we in the hopeful majority continue to stay silent and just let the symbols and aspects and ideas that should not be right, left, conservative, liberal, blue, green, purple, but should be genuine principles of humanity, should be principles that we all share, there's no reason for us to let these ideas succumb to what I call the partisan industrial complex, to what we call binary thinking, us versus them, good versus bad, uh, great versus evil. We are living through this moment where there's an attack on nuance, where there's an attack on this fact that you can't hold to what might be seemingly potentially conflicting ideas. In fact, that is the sign of human intelligence. And so I want to talk to you about why I love America. Yes, I said it. I love this place. If I'm honest with you, it's what drives me. It's what keeps me going. It gives me the purpose to build Bridge USA and some of the amazing work that our student leaders are doing. And well, if you clip that specific moment, I might have just lost half the audience. People immediately say, well, this guy must be this or that. This guy must believe this thing or that thing. He must either, you know, he must not understand all the challenges of the place, or he must only look at one side of the issue. But let me tell you why I love America. I love America because I believe that America is the most ambitious experiment in the history of humanity. Most ambitious. I didn't say worst. I also didn't say greatest. I said most ambitious. Now, Check over to the next week's episode where I actually talk to you about why I think it is the most ambitious experiment in the history of humanity. But for today's show, I want to hold on the first part of that. Why do I love America? It is important to state that when we talk about love, 
If you remember the goal of the show, the hopeful majority, it's a, a place for us to exist. The people out there that want to listen, want to be curious, that want to hold nuance, want to hold complexity, want to challenge each other's ideas, people that are willing to give each other the chance to be better, people that aren't in search of unity, but in search of a of a of a process that enables us to have difficult conversations in constructive ways so that we can solve our challenges. Well, why does it matter for us and me? to say, I love America. It's because love, I think, and I'm young, so I'll defer to you. I might be wrong in this. I might be totally off in this, but here's my understanding of it. As a young person, I think love means you admire. And I also think love means you accept the flaws. You accept the critiques for that place to be better. Why is it that we live in this moment where I either have to say that I think that America is the best thing ever, or I think that America is the worst thing ever? Why can't we say something like, we love America and here's why. I love America because I admire the place. I admire the place because my story, simply put, would not be possible without this country and its ideas. For some context, as I talked about in episode one, about a little bit of my story, I was born in New Jersey after my parents immigrated from, the, from India to the United States. I was born here in 98 then went to live with my grandparents on and off for the next couple of years as my parents tried to settle in the United States. You know, there were many moments where my mom and my dad thought, well, let's just go back to India. It's much easier there for us. And then they saw me and they thought, well, this guy's going to have a much better chance at doing what he might want to do in the United States. I got to pursue my passions. I got to pursue my challenges. I got to meet amazing new people. I got to experience diversity like humanity has never seen before. I got to uh, live both what some people might call a privileged life and what others might call an underprivileged life. Yes, nuance, believe it or not. I grew up in an environment where what is possible changed for me. I'm able to do what I'm doing today, an Indian person talking about democracy in America. That is a profound notion in the history of humanity. This idea that we just get to talk about places that we live in, that is amazing. The fact that I get to pursue a career and a passion, my deep held passion to make this democracy as strong as possible, that is amazing to me. So I admire the place. And yet, the other part of love is also accepting the flaws. I understand and recognize that America has a deep history of racism, like many other Western democracies. And America's is unique, in my opinion. The institution of slavery is not only marred and tarred the way that institutions have developed in the United States, but it has set certain populations back. The United States is engaged in wars and conflict that might seem hypocritical to many. The United States has exported and also served not just as a beacon of hope in many cases, but also as a beacon of conflict and challenge. Many of our citizens still feel the backdrop of institutional racism, what many might call institutional racism. There's much more there to say on the critique of America, but that's just to show you that I also deeply understand that critique. I spend most of my life wrestling with that. I spend 90% of my day thinking about, because that is my job, is to understand so that we can help inculcate a sense of understanding and purpose. Now, what's funny about this is if you took the first three minutes of the show 
in this monologue and you clipped the part where I said, I love America and then talk about me admiring it immediately. A lot of people that, again, I don't want to engage in label thinking, but let's be real about our politics. A lot of people on the right will say, well, this guy is our guy. He, he's a patriot. He believes in this place. He deeply admires it. This is it. And many people on the, on, on what many might call the left will say, He's completely ignorant, hypocritical, somebody that is only upholding and complicit in systems of injustice. And then you take the second three minutes of what I just said, where I talk about the flaws of the United States, and immediately people on the left are going to say, this is our guy. He understands the challenges of America. He understands where we have gone wrong. And then people on the right are going to say, well, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. And not only that, why does he deserve, what, what is he talking, he's ignoring some of the founding principles, the what they might call some of the best founding political documents in the history of humanity. But this is exactly my point, is let us reclaim and take back these things that seem to be increasingly victims of partisan industrial complex, increasingly victims of polarized thinking. Things can be great and they can also be simultaneously flawed at the same time. Because any organization consisting of humans at scale or at the local level is bound to be imperfect from our families to our companies, to our civic associations, to our countries, because after all, we as people are imperfect. And I think in fact, it should be okay to acknowledge imperfection and it should also be okay to acknowledge the, the other side of that, that actually there can be a lot of benefit. I don't understand why this is so difficult for us to wrap our heads around. And in fact, as a young person, it's both disheartening, but also something that I deeply believe in, the nuance of ideas, holding the fact that you can love America, this notion that you can admire and accept its flaws. And why does all of this matter? Why does it matter? Why am I waging and think waging into this sort of deep end of what many might call a cluster of a situation? Why am I opening up the show to potential attack? Well, one is because I want to be honest with you with my thinking. I want it to be challenged. I want you to let me know, well, here's where I disagree. And I want to get better about that. That's one thing. The second thing is I think this notion of adding nuance to what might be simple, good or bad thinking or binaries or ideologies is that for all of those that critique America, if you want to build a better place, if you want to build a better country, if you want to build a tomorrow that you think is much better than today, well, you have to believe in the place. We got to have purpose. We have to feel like there's something worth saving. If all we do is critique and we don't acknowledge the the the, the progress, then what, what are we doing? It, it only breeds pessimism and it breeds a sense of self-defeatism. It makes us deeply cynical. And to create change, as Dr. King and Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi have talked about, some of the greatest 20th century social change leaders, change requires a deep love for the place because you want it. You want it to be better. So that's why it matters for those of us that are more on the critique side. And for those of us that are much more on the admiration side, well, here's the fact. We can admire place as long as we want, but the founding fathers of this country would have always wanted us to acknowledge the flaws that we can keep getting better. The process of getting better, the process of perfection, like it is in every other aspect of life, requires us to understand the challenges, not so that we can dwell on the challenges, but so that we can 
improve on those challenges, to be honest with each other. This isn't vacuous platitudes. This is an articulation of a theory of change. For us to build a better world, we have to be able to both admire the world we live in and also critique the world we live in. For us to be able to admire what is America and also be able to critique what is America, because I know for a fact that almost every one of us has things to be grateful for and also has things that they feel deeply concerned about, regardless of race, ethnicity, background. Some of us might have more things to admire about America. Some of us might have many less things to admire about America. But the fact is that for us to make this experiment succeed and be effective, we have to be able to hold the complexity of our minds. We have to be able to hold the complexity of our thinking. And I'm so excited for our guest to be joining us shortly, Professor Jeremy Suri, because he's actually going to walk us through some of the historical precedents and arguments for this notion for us to be able to challenge some of the narratives. And I want to end on this. You know, I want to end on this notion that this is one example of the binary thinking that pervades us and our society. There are many other things that I would call have become victims of the partisan industrial complex. The American flag, and I think America is one of those things that has become increasingly polarized. I think there's many other symbols, certain speech, certain terms that we talk about, certain ways that we act. In fact, I would argue that it's not necessarily for our better, but it's because a lot of those people reap profits off of these divisions and these terms. I want to reclaim and forward a new understanding of how we can actually love this place, not so that we can be either complicit in its flaws or be completely lost in its admiration, but so that we can find the will and ambition and moral courage to push better and to realize the promise of this country, realize the promise of this democracy, realize the highest ideals that have motivated our founding fathers, that have motivated our civil rights activists that have pushed this place forward like John Lewis and Martin Luther King, that have motivated women's rights activists, that have motivated intellectuals on the left and right to push our thinking. And that is why the logo of the show, the background of the show is so focused on America because I think that for us to make a place better, for us to constantly invest in it, we have to recognize the strength. And that is why I love America. On to the monologue. Very excited to have Professor Suri. All right, everybody. We have the long-awaited... Um, I've been strictly notified to say Jeremy, but Professor Suri, uh, appreciate your time. Thank you so much for being here. This is a very exciting conversation. Uh, thank you for your time. My pleasure. I've been looking forward to it uh, since you first suggested it. And uh, I'm so excited that you now have this wonderful podcast that you're producing. Thank you so much. And and for the audience to know, uh, as we had done in the introduction, we talked about Jeremy is a distinguished professor of American history at UT Austin. And he's somebody that I've looked into a lot in terms of informing my thinking on our politics and our democracy. And as the audience has heard, we talked and I really delved and dived deep into what it means to love America. How do you critique it and also admire it? Um, and that's sort of what we're coming off of, Jeremy. Some light topics. <laughs> right. Uh, minor topics. My, minor topics, but I know <laughs> topics that you've spent a lot of your time thinking about. So let me just ask you right off the bat, if you were to describe, you know, the history of America, 
to somebody that hasn't really studied it, thought about it, um, somebody that might be thinking about coming to America, immigrating to America. They just they just know it from the movies and the shows. Like, what would you describe American history as being? American history is a great experiment. It's an experiment we're still a part of. We're trying to do and have been trying to do something that was never done before. And we've done it well at some moments in some areas, and we've done it very poorly at other moments in other areas. What's the big experiment? It's building a diverse society of people from all over the world who are self-governing. And self-governing in a way that also prevents one group from tyrannizing another. Uh, that self-governing, diverse, uh, wide-spanning territory, uh, that's something no other society succeeded at doing. I don't know if we've succeeded. Uh, we've come closer, perhaps, than anyone else, but we're still in that experiment. How would you describe this current moment? I think this is a moment of uh, challenge to that experiment. This is uh, when things aren't going exactly as the laboratory monitors would hope that they would. Um, we're finding that our diversity is pulling us apart at times. Um, and the resistance to diversity is pulling us apart. We're finding that the tools of democracy, the tools of self-governance are sometimes being used by people to prevent self-governance for others. And we're finding that it's harder and harder to bring people together. None of those phenomena are unique to this moment, but the conjunction of them has made this moment not our most difficult, but perhaps one of the more difficult moments in our history. So as the audience has heard in the past couple of episodes, I don't actually have any questions prepped. And I like to take this conversation where it's going because it really speaks to, again, the value of these sort of long form formats. And where this where my mind immediately goes to is you raise this notion that you know this moment is something where the it, it's not necessarily meeting the calls of the experiment right the experiment might not be necessarily on the right track with respect to where we are right now why do you think that is like from your angle and your perspective and your expertise what do you think are the primary reasons for sort of the current malaise that a lot of people feel I think there are two um, stimuli, among others, that are really making this moment difficult. The first is that many of the changes that we have been experiencing for the last 50 to 60 years, a more diverse country, people coming from more places to our country, uh, challenges to existing modes of authority by a younger generation with more technical skills, that and international competition, those two things together have uh, hit a turning point in a sense where many individuals who felt very comfortable, who felt very safe, who felt that they had control and status, they now find that threatened. And as the historian Richard Hofstetter wrote more than 60 years ago, uh, Americans are often driven to divisive, hateful actions when they feel their status is threatened, especially those who have had status for a long time. And so to be very direct about it, there are people who tolerated or at least accepted changes they didn't always agree with because they didn't find them personally threatening. Now they find them personally threatening when they can't get their kids into the college they want to get them into, or they can't run the business and work the way they've always worked before in their hardware store or their factory. And, and those personal challenges to status have led people who in the past might have seemed part of a larger, more inclusive democratic project. They now feel that inclusive democratic project is hurting them. 
And so they resisted. So I do want to get very specific about who is they, because one of the values of, uh, and the goals of this podcast is to demonstrate that we in the hopeful majority want that nuance. We want to go there and we're ready to tackle some of those deep challenges. But before I get there, you mentioned this sort of like resistance to change, right? And I, and you and I have had this conversation before, I think where I mentioned, you know, I, I'm from India originally. I was born in the United States. I lived there for a while. My parents grew up in India. You know, if I, uh, let's say took you to a, 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 one of the villages that I grew up in, um, people would be immediately resistant to you. And so my question, and I'm curious, is like, is that because I'm Punjabi? Is that because exactly I'm Punjabi? that that is exactly it? It's because it's because they know you're Punjabi, but they can't quite tell. Um, and so, so my the question that I have is like, this phenomenon of being resistant to change seems like a human thing. Why do you think that is? And then I want to get specific to the American context. I think uh, the resistance to change is a common human phenomenon because it's a survival mechanism. We learn to uh, become comfortable in our primordial soup, wherever we are, and we learn to make the best of it. And, and that's why uh, poor people rarely make revolution. This is a, a paradox of history, right? People can be in suffering conditions, Manu, but if they're accustomed to it, if they're comfortable with it, if they don't know anything better or don't think there's anything better, uh, then they put up with it. Where things get difficult is when people believe that what they're comfortable in is changing. And even if you tell them you're going to make it better, uh, they're worried because it's not what they're used to. We are creatures of habit as human beings, and we're in a moment of rapid change. And that's what's disrupting so many patterns of behavior. Hmm. So we're, we're a creature of habit. So now let's, let's take that to the American context. Um, it seemed like a big part and feel free to correct me here if I'm wrong, but it seemed like a big part of the diagnosis of the moment stems from this notion that a lot of folks feel threatened in their power status and their hierarchy. Who are those, those people from your perspective? And, and why do you think that is? So I think most of those who feel threatened are actually really good people. And they're people who might even have looked progressive in the past. Um, but the pace of change is so quick. And they feel particularly threatened now because, unfortunately, many changes and decisions we've made in the last 20 years, particularly in the United States, have made us more of a winner-take-all society. And so if you fall a little, you end up falling a lot. And people know that. People know that there's a long way to fall, even if even if you're close to the top of the mountain. And so who are these individuals? These are people living in small towns. These are individuals who have been well educated, but they're not super elite educated. These are hardworking folk who have raised their families, who have put a lot of effort into their homes, into their jobs, and they feel they have no chance at getting ahead in the way that graduates of our universities can, who look different who have networks they don't have, who have credentials they don't have. And uh, they are threatened by the Indian immigrants, for example, who are coming and now getting the high paying jobs when their kids are having trouble getting into the universities that will open up the high paying jobs for their kids. So you mentioned jobs there a little bit, but if we could even drill down to the specificities of some of the changes that you think are making people particularly anxious, what do you think those are? 
I think very directly, it's the loss of control in your community. So uh, the dominant generation, the baby boomers, are individuals who grew up in an America that was globalized. We had global supply chains for a long time. Most of the things we wear, we don't actually make in our own society. But there still has been a sense that in my neighborhood, in my town, I control things. I know the people who run the hardware store, the grocery store. I know people who oversee medical and legal services. I have control over my life. And that's no longer the case. Your lawyer is likely to be someone actually perhaps on another continent. Uh, the energy you consume is coming from places you can't recognize. It's forms of energy you don't know. There's a loss of control in our neighborhoods and in our communities. We have grown up accustomed to that, a younger generation, but an older generation, our parents' generation, um, still craves that control and it's understandable. And, and that's what's been lost. So if I played devil's advocate for just a little bit. And, and for everybody listening, one thing that I've learned from Jeremy is just the importance of intellectual humility. He's way smarter than I am, very well read, and yet he's given up an hour of his time. So I want to just reflect on that a little bit, right? Let's, let's, let's play devil's advocate on this for a quick second. Somebody that's listening to this, Jeremy, that is, let's say, in a small town, in a rural state, and they're working many jobs. They uh, feel like they can't get ahead. And when they hear us talking, um, it makes total sense to me if they said, wait, what do you mean control? I never had any control. You know, my family's a victim of the, you know, the opiate crisis. I, uh, free of factory jobs, I don't have a stable job. There's no factory left. So I didn't lose anything. I never started with anything. Um, how do you respond to that? And is, am I off base in sort of thinking about that experience? And if so, how do you see that paralleling with this notion of loss of control? So I, I think, Manu, you, you make a very smart point. So you, you're at least as smart as I am. Um, the control is more perception than reality. Uh, many historians, myself included, would say that, yes, uh, for generations. That's really people, just really quickly as you keep sure. going. I just want to underscore perception versus reality for folks that are listening uh, and the importance of that distinction. I just want to underscore yeah. that. Sorry, keep going. Thank you. No, no, I should have I should have given more attention to that. Um, so the, the the person we're thinking of, right, someone who has grown up in a you know small town or bedroom community of one kind or another, uh, they probably didn't have as much control over their lives 20, 30, 40 years ago as they thought, but they did. They, they at least believed they did. They perceived that they had control. Life seemed simpler and there seemed more accountability between the high school football coach and the local hardware store owner and the local doctor. Now, even though you could argue that the system was doing things they didn't have control over, they felt they had that control. They felt that they had anchoring. And here's the thing. They believed, and we know Americans believed this in the 50s and 60s as a whole, especially white Americans, they believed that their children would live at least as well, if not better. Today, those same communities, they don't have that confidence. Maybe they don't have any less control than they had before, but they certainly perceive it that way. And one of the reasons they perceive it that way is the high school football coach doesn't look like them. The players on the team look different. The, there's, there's, not a doc, there's not a doctor down the street. There's some you know, medical corporation down the street. There's no local hardware store. And you and I are on the internet and we get a lot of attention and they don't. No one's listening to them. So they feel feel they've lost whatever control they at least perceived that they had before. How do we address that? 
I think we need to make those communities feel like they have voice. They have to be connected to our politics. And the challenge of our moment is those who have connected to them have often connected to them by playing to their hate, their anger, their resentment. And I'm not really just targeting the right. You could argue that people on the left do this as well. Instead of creating a conversation, as I know you're trying to do, about how we can work together and help each other and how by building new bridges, we can give ourselves a little more control over our lives or at least the feeling of a little more control. We've been doing the opposite now for 10, 20 years, doing it very well on social media in particular, which is playing to your anger, uh, activating your anger and getting Getting you to bond with other people who share the same anger. It's not productive to make your life better, but it makes you feel like you're not alone. And it makes you feel like you're doing something because you're yelling with other people who are yelling in chorus with you. Yeah. One of the things that I've noticed um, just being in a lot of different communities from racially diverse communities to rural communities is that there's this phrase that now we've been popularizing through this podcast called the outrage industrial complex. Basically, this notion that um, whether you're on the right or the left, there's a whole industry built on outrage. In fact, people find community in outrage. It's much easier to be outrageous than it is to do what we're doing. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. th- but I want to I want to just I want to reflect on something. This The past like five minutes of this conversation are fascinating. You know, first ask you to diagnose this moment. You mentioned this feeling that there's folks out there that feel like their status is being lost and that they feel anxious towards change, which is leading to bad behavior. Someone clipped that portion. They would say, well, you know, Jeremy obviously being a critique of the right, conservatives, it's not a good thing. Then I asked you a follow-up question where then we get got to the point where actually, but some of their pain makes sense. There is some empathy there, but it's a question of perception versus reality. So we introduced some nuance. And then you got to the point where you said, well, actually, in fact, we do need to empower those communities. We need to connect them into our democracy and our broader conversation. Why is this level of nuance that we just went through where they need to see this conversation needs to have to happen in a cohesive package where it's not like we don't care about that person or, you know, there's it seems like this discourse means it's us versus them and there's no room for a nuanced, complex conversation. Like, why is that right now? Two reasons, I think, among others. Uh, one is a lack of trust. When you and I say we need to include these communities, I think some people look at us and they don't believe us. They think when we say include, we mean tell them what to do tell them they can't live. I mean, this is the critique that's made of um, those, at least myself, when I argue for inclusion. I believe that people should live whatever life they want to lead. They should be called whatever they want to be called. I I just, I'm a Jeffersonian in that sense. I believe in people being, you know, personally radical, however they wish. But some people think I'm telling them that they need to live that way. Right. And they don't trust me that I don't that I actually am saying, no, it's okay. If you want to be white, male and straight, that's just as fine as being trans Asian and, uh, you know, from another continent. It doesn't matter. But but they see that they don't trust me in that. And and I I know why they don't. uh, And I haven't figured out how we on a macro scale can build that. Sorry. Sorry. No, but I, I think, no, no, no need to apologize. I was just going to say, I think part of the reason for that lack of trust is that we're forgetting that most people in this country like us, um, like folks in rural communities, like folks in inner cities, honestly, are just trying to figure out a way to make things work. And that I think we're all on the same team, that we all share a certain temperament. So let's not surrender this conversation specifically to what you see on Fox News or MSNBC. Now, that being said, just one other question I have on this question, and then I want to get to, you mentioned Jeffersonian. 
that's my very violent transition to history of America. Martin, um, can I make one other point quickly? Please. I wanted to make just uh, because you you highlighted, I think, as you always do so well. I think really, what's the fundamental point? I think Absolutely. this is a secondary one, which is that we also don't have the historical memory and knowledge of a time when we had programs that were intended and succeeded in some cases in building these bridges. We, we, we not only lost faith in that and trust in it, it's not in our historical memory. And I'll just give you one example. Uh, when this. you're giving that example, yeah. I purposely don't want you to say the president. Yeah. I, I just, let, let's just outline the, I, because I think we live in this moment where we give labels and administrations and presidents and people immediately shut off. Yeah. So let's just like, let's give that example as if you're just describing it to somebody. And this one actually crosses two presidents from two administrations. I won't name them, but it truly is crossing. So many rural areas in Texas and Wisconsin and other parts of the country, parts of California, too, uh, did not have electricity um, for much of the early 20th century. The way electricity came to these areas was through rural cooperatives where the government, federal and state, worked with different communities Christians, Jews, and others living in different towns and got them to work together to pool their resources to create what were cooperative, not for-profit, cooperative non-profit entities that brought electricity to these parts of the country. That actually built trust. It built working relationships between religious communities, for example, that didn't have connection before. And that transfers into World War II. When you read um, the sort of oral histories of many people who served in World War II, you'll find that it's in their rural community through a rural cooperative that was providing energy that they actually first worked with people who looked different, who they then would serve side by side with in a foxhole in France. Wow. And, you know, I think sometimes stories like that, it's it's even it's hard for us to even imagine that something like that is possible in today's environment. And and let, let's let's transition to that. But there's just one question I want to close off this piece on, um, which is, let's say I'm somebody that let's play devil's advocate in the other direction and, and say, you know, I think it's great to empower those communities, but why are, that, that feels like we're just platforming, giving an excuse to what is just outright hate. You know, um, there's no need to accommodate or empathize or, or give voice to, um, we need to be specifically focused right now on building a multiracial democracy. And we don't have the time to be thinking about empowering and bring people on that aren't on board with that vision. Instead, just focus on building that democracy. How do you think about that critique? I, I, I don't see how that can work. I don't think you can give the um, naysayers or the hateful actors or the, the racists and misogynists, you can't give them any dominant place, but they have to be included. I mean, what you're saying is saying, well, then we should never show up for Thanksgiving dinner with the rest of our family, right? Because those people are there. No, I think the art of politics is uh, sitting around a table figuratively and literally with people who share very different attitudes, but finding common ground you can begin to work through, not apologizing or justifying their attitudes, but not presuming that you can eliminate their attitudes overnight. That doesn't happen. So you mentioned this this historic example of of rural non-cooperatives that empowered these communities, which led into World War II. And the question that immediately comes to mind is, 
why is it that it's so difficult to achieve that type of infrastructural building that brings all people together, that gives jobs, that gives widespread economic empowerment at this moment? Because that, to me, if you just told me that as somebody that knows nothing about history, let's say, I mean, that sounds like a great idea. You know, it seems like a win-win where people feel empowered. Uh, and we're watching the challenge of this when we look at school boards around our country today. Most parents believe that there should be better schools. Even if they like their school, they want it to be better. Most parents believe teachers should be supported. I, there are very few parents right, who are anti-teacher, right? But yet, look at how our community is being divided. Why, Manu? Because we end up focusing on the issues of division. I'm going to call them distractions. That doesn't mean they're trivial. But the issues that don't matter most, let's, let's be honest, right? Uh, whether one book is in a library or not, and I'm against all book burning and book censoring, but whether one book is in a library or not is actually not the key issue. The key issue is, are we bringing the best possible teachers with the best possible resources into every single classroom to give every kid the best possible opportunity? And, and I say that it's so obvious, but it's almost impossible to find a discussion about that on school boards today because they're so focused on the other things. And this this is about the problem of having a, a media scape where we're constantly bombarded with stimuli to think about and get angry about one thing or another. And it's because of a lack of trust and people playing out their anger. When you look at these you know recordings of these school board meetings, people are showing up, parents are showing up and, and they're acting out their trauma. They're not actually sitting down around the table and saying, how can we pool our resources back to the example I gave to actually help our schools teach everyone to be better? You know, uh, and this is exactly why I uh, uh, wanted to make sure that we had a conversation. In one of these first five episodes is because one of the things that we've noticed in this creation of thinking about the hopeful majority of people out there is when you talk about this exact thing that you're talking about, you know, let's let's create the best type, best teachers with the best resources that make our kids better. Eighty five percent of the country on board. And then I put in the partisan filter and then suddenly what happens is that most of us get exhausted. We don't want to be part of that conversation. Let's give up. And then the loudest, craziest people occupy the microphone. And as a result, what you just said there becomes twisted into something either for the left or for the right. Um, what do you think in this moment is incentivizing that? What do you think is incentivizing this sort of outrage industrial complex? And let's bring in the history of, of our country. Do you think there's moments of time um, where we can find some sort of map or guide of moments that have been as polarized and as divided as they are now. Yes. I mean, we have been polarized many times in our history. Polarization waxes and wanes. Um, and, and you've heard me say this before, and everyone will think I'm crazy, but I think I'm right. In 20 years, we'll have the next version of your podcast. We'll be in space at that time. Uh, and we'll be talking about how people agree too much because we go back and forth between these moments of dissensus and consensus. Uh, what is it that's common to this moment of partisanship that's similar to the era around the Civil War, that's similar to the early 20th century, that's similar, in fact, to the early years right after World War II, if you look at especially domestic issues in the United States, or similar to the 18th century, the Jeffersonian and Hamiltonian debates. What is it that, that's similar? Uh, the stakes seem really large and the modes of communication play to outrage. Um, and social media today is at the same nascent stage that radio was in the 1920s. And our radio was filled with hate. 
in the 1920s, uh, or what television was in the era of Joseph McCarthy and early, early Richard Nixon. If you want to get attention, everyone listening to this knows this. If you want to get attention, the more outrageous the image and the more outrageous the words, the more hits you get on Twitter or Instagram or whatever it is. And so people play to that. Quite literally, they play that. Every politician I've talked to in the last few weeks has told me that I can sit down with politician Y and there's no cameras and it's a totally different person than when they have their social media up. And we need to move beyond that. How have we done that in prior eras? How did we go from the world of Father Coughlin in the early 1930s, who was the most popular radio personality and had an explanation for the Great Depression. It was called Jews and Blacks. How did we go from that to the world of a Franklin Roosevelt, uh, to the world of, a, of a re honest reporting, as we call it uh, today? I think it's a concerted effort by leaders and a new generation of citizens to say, we want better use of this communications technology and we will give our eyes, our ears, our money more to what we think is serious use rather than divisive use of this technology. You know, the 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 call back to somebody like Father Coughlin and and correct me if I'm wrong, but from my remembrance on someone like him, we talk about Tucker. He I think at his max, Tucker Carlson had a reach of six million uh, on his Fox News show. Uh, Father Coughlin, if I understand correctly, from my historical reading, was in the tens of millions in terms of audience and complete read. Yes. Right? Yeah. Some would say close close to 100 million people at certain times listen to him. Which at that time, from a population standpoint, is almost uh, fifty percent of the country. Yes, that's, um, right. that's right. So when we talk about sort of the death grip of outrage on our media and our and our industries, what role do you think we as individuals can do to disrupt that dynamic? Because I I was just making a video about this earlier where I was like, you know, guys, I'm telling you, I, I'm new to the social media thing. I can already tell you the content that I know will do well and won't do well, and I need your support in supporting the content that is more nuanced and long form because part of us and our actions and our addiction to outrage feeds into the algorithm. So how much responsibility do you place on the individual and the consumer as opposed to the companies? How do you think about that dynamic? I, I place enormous responsibility on us as consumers because what we know, especially about the major producers of media today is they're, they're driven almost entirely by profit. I don't think Rupert Murdoch uh, in running Fox News is actually out to promote a conservative agenda. He's just out to make money. And he realized that's a niche he could fill and monetize. And he's done it in a certain way brilliantly. And why did he remove Tucker Carlson? Because he became a legal and financial liability to him, not because he had a change of heart. What does that tell me? That tells me we can have enormous influence, especially a young generation of consumers of media. Let's let's be frank, your your generation, Manu, right? That's the future of media, right? The the, the older watchers are not going to be around as long as you are. If it's a very you, polite way to put it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and if you put a marker down that there's certain things you're not going to watch, that's why people don't say the N-word anymore. It's not because um, television producers and radio producers um, found that they didn't want to that they didn't shouldn't say that word. It's that you would stop watching. Right. If you're watching something and they use the N word, you stop watching. Uh, we need to create those rules as consumers. Right. And that's not violating anyone's free speech. 
It's saying that we believe there are certain rules we expect for civic public discourse. You can have any political point of view, but you shouldn't be, uh, for instance, lying about an election. You shouldn't claim an election that was won by someone was not won by someone. And if you're an entity that is saying that, we're going to stop watching you very quickly, kind of like the Montgomery bus boycott. Very quickly, you'll find a shift in those media companies and how they operate. Now, I've been doing this work long enough to know that somebody that's listening to this wants me to dig into the election question further, but I will purposefully not. And the reason being (laughs) is because... We have much more, much more sort of forward-thinking questions to address because at a space like this, when we think about conversations that move our country forward, we are increasingly drawn to stories, I feel, because I want to know what that person thinks about this specific thing that I'm super interested in. But let's challenge our audience a little bit. You mentioned the rural programs of the early 20th century that were huge. There were other programs associated with that. And it felt like a lot of historians make the argument that at that time, there seemed to be a sense of purpose. There seemed to be a sense of, 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 um, of investment in the notion of America, that we are all on the same team pushing forward. I'm sure the war assisted with that sentiment. Um, is that true at all? Is that rosy colored glasses looking backwards? Do you feel like there's currently a fractured sense of purpose when it comes to America? Like what's, what's your sort of thought on that? I think people believe in America, the notion of an America as much or as little as they did before. Uh, in the early 20th century, you know, many of those who were advocates of a common America would have looked at you and me and said that we're not part of it. Right. So so I don't think um, we're worse off in that sense. I think what's different, though, is our mental geography has changed. Right. So if you are someone living in small town, rural Wisconsin, this is an area I've studied a little bit. So I'm, I'm thinking of specific people and at, at that specific moment, many historians have written about this area. You might not have liked all the people living around you, but you felt that your future was dependent on them. Your place mapping was actually pretty local, right? Your food, your commerce, your education, it was within a few miles of where you lived. Today, our mental geography is global. And so a lot of the people who live just next door to me here in Austin, Texas, they're in some ways more connected to Bangalore and to Beijing than they are to downtown Austin. And their future is actually perhaps more dependent on what happens in Bangalore and Beijing than what happens just a few miles away in another neighborhood here in Austin that they might never now visit. They're, in fact, more likely to spend time in Beijing and in Bangalore than just a few blocks, whereas the opposite would have been true in the early 20th century. And I think that's the challenge because our mental geography is global and it is fractured how do we define place and how do we define loyalty and how do we define who our team is, if we want to think of it that way, when we're, when we're pulled in these directions. What's interesting about this and the notion of a mental geography is that the, the backdrop of, and the cover art of this podcast, which I was told by many people to not do is the American flag. And it's, and I promise it's designed and, and done in a way where I hope that people reflect and appreciate it. But I was immediately told, Manu, don't do that. It's going to it's going to it's going to be a polarizing symbol. You know, people are going to associate your conversation with one thing or the other. Um, And part of what I want to start doing with this, Jeremy, is how do you reclaim um, how do you be a global citizen, but still have some degree of admiration or respect for your home? 
Um, one is, is that even just a question of worry? Is that something to think about? And, and two is, uh, if so, like, how do you, how do you wrestle with that and think through the fact that we are so global and yet we need to, in some way, feel invested if we want to make the place better? Yes, I, I think we have to, right? Because just where we started, Manu, I mean, democracy, for better or worse, is built upon certain territorial assumptions. Uh, people, uh, citizens of the United States vote in our elections. Non-citizens who we work with in Beijing don't vote in our elections, right? So, so the territory is there whether we like it or not, and we can argue over whether it's fairly defined or not. But nonetheless, it's what we have. Democracy is to some extent territorially based in a world of sovereign states. So this matters enormously. And, and I think it, the imperative for us is to build institutions that connect my neighbors to the other part of Austin, just as they're connected to Beijing. What, what's happened is that let's just take the most obvious thing, transportation. It's strangely easier to fly from Austin to Beijing than it is to get from Austin to Lubbock, Texas or to Denton, Texas. There's no public transportation I have to drive myself if I want to go to one of those other places in Texas, but I can get on an overnight flight and I can find some excuse for someone to pay for me to go there for a conference or something. And, and I'm connected and I'm there. Uh, and if you look at how people live their lives, our infrastructure, just our infrastructure of travel has made things easier. Well, if we had more public infrastructure that made it easier for me to go to a restaurant that's 20 minutes away by car, uh, I would do that. Right. Um, and so building those institutions, getting people to actually feel that local connection as well as that international connection has to be intentional. It has to be funded and it has to be programmatic. You know, uh, again, this goes to the core of the value of having nuance in a conversation like this. You just made an argument for public transportation, which is perceived by some. And again, I don't want to get into the labeling, but part of this podcast is tackling the binaries by some as this must be a progressive issue. The argument you just made for it is one that is fundamentally patriotic, which is fascinating. I never thought about it. You're saying we got to have more transportation to connect our local communities so that you and I can feel more invested in each other. And that's the type of conversation we need to be having. Um, Again, it's part of what I try to do is to just challenge our audience to think in ways where we aren't immediately mired in the partisan conflict of the day. Um, Let's build on the history piece a little bit. You wrote an amazing and interesting book um, that I had the pleasure of reading called Civil War by Other Means. And in that, you talk about the period following the Civil War and you specifically, and this is the part where I did write down, you you make a really interesting argument about how the United States was rebuilding at that time, the backlash that it faced through that rebuilding process and how we navigated that moment. What do you think we as a society have to learn from the immediate post-Civil War era, the time of Reconstruction with President Grant? and where we are today as a society? Because it seems like we're in this rebuild moment again for different reasons, very different reasons. But what do we have to learn from that period? I, I think a number of things. Uh, one of them is that uh, the work of rebuilding takes time and it it's expensive. And I don't mean just in terms of money, in terms of time and effort. There's no silver bullet solution. There's not no one who's going to sit down as smart as you are, Manu, and those who work with her, I'm sure, equally smart. You're not going to sit down and come up with a plan that will implement this in three steps. We don't have years. a five point <laughs> McKinsey funded consultant plan to save America. 
There you go. You don't. And you don't have a two by two matrix either. That's that's not how it works. Those things are helpful. Don't get me wrong. A lot of my students go and work for McKinsey. I'll ask (laughs) ChatGPT. But uh, maybe ChatGPT will do. Maybe the robots will save us. It, It takes a long time. And we have to be in it for the long haul. We have to know why we're doing it. The problem Grant confronted that I spent a lot of time writing about in the book that fascinated me was not a problem of intentionality. Grant was trying to do the right things, but he did not have his party that was in control of everything, the Republican Party. They didn't have a long-term commitment to actually rebuild the South. They had a long-term commitment to deal with some of the problems, some of the things they didn't like, but not to fundamentally rebuild the region and rebuild the nation as a functioning multiracial democracy. We need to make that commitment, which is one of the reasons I wrote this book, because we need to stare the challenge in the face. I'm optimistic on the United States. I'm a patriot, uh, but I believe we've got problems that we need to address as big problems that require big lifetime commitments. And that's why I believe in making public service something that people value as much as anything else. And you can be a public servant from the right or the left. I don't care. But to do work for public value should be valued as much in our society as creating a nifty startup that people invest in in the stock market for a short time until they don't invest in it anymore. You know, the the fascinating piece of, of, of thinking about public service, especially at this moment, this notion of being in it for the long haul, this idea that we have to feel a certain sense of commitment to the place, it speaks to this notion that we have to have some degree of appreciation or admiration for the place that we live in. And yet, at the same time, we have to accept and understand the flaws to get better. Um It seems to me that a central component of revitalizing a sense of purpose and hope and belief in America as just a concept within people is to reconcile two questions in this debate, that you either have to deeply critique and understand American history through a lens that is is focused on flaws or a lens that is focused on greatness, admiration. why does that binary exist as a historian? What's your perspective on that? And why does it seem to me that the most logical position would seem is to me, well, we can love the place, admire it. It's got some flaws, serious challenges. Let's acknowledge those flaws and let's put those two together to create the best society possible. Why does that logical position to me seem to be so difficult to come by? Uh, that logical position, which is the correct position, which is what most of us really feel. It's also as how we approach families. We all love our families, I hope, but we all have flawed families. <laughs> all of us have very flawed families, uh, but we love them and want to make them better. We don't give up uh, and, and don't give up. No one should give up. right? Why is it hard to see our history in our society that way? Because that takes a lot of energy. It's so much easier just to create two categories and put yourself on one side or the other. And, and, and I feel for those who emphasize the horrors and the bad things our society has done. And there are many slavery at the top of the list. Uh, but that said, um, if that's all you emphasize, you're only seeing a part of our society and our history and you're missing the possibility for renewal. Same on the other side. If you believe we're the greatest ever and we've always been great and you're uncomfortable with addressing the challenges, the shortcomings, uh, then you've created uh, a paper tiger. You've created something that isn't real. It's empty. It's gilded in Mark Twain's terms, right? Gold on the outside, garbage on the inside. Uh, And so it takes energy, though, not to fall into one of those two categories. We are drawn to being fans and critics 
rather than problem solvers. Problem solving takes more energy. Problem solving takes more energy. Building takes more energy. Having this nuanced conversation takes energy. I just <laughs> want you to tell me what's good, what's bad, and be simple <laughs> about it. But let's get let's get real for a moment. What's fascinating about the let's focus on the critique side for a quick quick second. You know, there's serious flaws, there's serious challenges about the United States that we have to confront. Now, to some that might seem like, well, we're only focused on that. What's your argument to somebody that's focused primarily on the critique? Um, what is your argument to them for why they should also appreciate America? Um, yeah. Why should they yeah. do that? Right. Well, so this is my response to the 1619 Project. I, I'm a big fan of the 1619 Project. Many of my friends uh, were a part of it. I think it's done an important uh, service in reorienting us to see how embedded in our origins slavery is. Slavery wasn't just an afterthought. It was central to who we were as a country. It still influences who we are. Yes, right on with that. But it was not only slavery. At the same time that slavery was embedded in who we were, so was a set of enlightenment ideals. So was a commitment to creating communities, not just in words, but in practice, that gave some people from some backgrounds access to resources and a possibility for self-governance that they had nowhere else in the world. And the, the fancy word, the dialectic, right? The contradiction between those two worlds is actually what has been the engine of change in our democracy and why every era has its negative consequences of slavery. Again, that's part of contemporary racism, but also the positive consequences of that desire for self-governance, which we see in a civil rights movement, or we see in our society's obsession, right, with protecting free speech and voice for different communities, a free press. Uh, all of these things develop at the same time. And it's like you're driving with one eye closed if you don't address both of them. Well, let's take the person that has the other eye closed now, the person that believes that America is the greatest country in the world. What is your argument to them for why they should read something like the 1619 Project? And why do you think they should open the other eye and think about some of the flaws of the country? So I, I have a very direct answer to this because I've had this conversation with many uh, military leaders in Washington who I often do consulting work for and many of my students who have a military connection. And it's very simple. Uh, if you want to win wars, you better study why you didn't win all your wars in the past. Uh, it is absolutely silly to say that the United States achieved what it wanted to achieve in Iraq. We can argue whether we should have been there or not. I'm not having that argument now. I think they're two different points of view. But there's no doubt that once we were there, we, we should have done a better job. And why did we not do a better job? Well, because we didn't understand some of our own shortcomings. If we don't want to recreate those shortcomings in Ukraine or somewhere else, uh, we better study that. We better look it straight in the eye. It's the same thing I would say about problems of racial inequality and police brutality in our society. I have a lot of students who are uh, police officers. My, one of my closest relatives was on the New York City Police Force for 25 years. He just retired. I'm so proud of him. He's one of the greatest public servants I know. Um, but if I want him to be safe, he better know the things they've done well and the things they haven't done well as police forces. So there's a very practical reason to learn from our mistakes. And if you think you've had no mistakes, you're setting yourself up for some really big ones in the future. And that is a perfect example. Again, what's 
amazing about this conversation. Perfect example of why we have to have the whole conversation, all of it. You just heard Professor Suri talk about how one of his closest relatives is a police officer for 20 years, how he thinks that's one of the greatest public servants. We've talked about how you think you're a patriot. And at the same time, we have to understand the critiques. We have to understand the flaws. We have to think about how we as a country move forward. Now, I think most people like are on the same page there, right? Again, they're on the same page. And the question that they're going to ask is, yes, but our, our our system's just too far gone. It's just too far gone. There's no need, you know, There's. it seems like we're just so incredibly divided. Nobody's going to listen to me. What is your message to somebody that's listening to this right now? And they're like, I, I agree with you, actually. I like the nuance and complexity with which you're approaching this dialogue and conversation. Like, how do we have more of these? Uh, I think the way to have more of them is is what what you're doing, right? Is actually being intentional about making these conversations a part of our daily lives and building institutions, building political activism of all kinds around that. Uh, our democracy is remade with every generation. That That's the genius of our system. It's also what's frustrating about it because when we get it right, it's not going to stay right for a long time either. Every generation re makes our system. The average age in Congress now is above 60. The average professor is above 60. None of these people are going to live forever. They are going to be replaced and they're going to be replaced by young people. They're going to be replaced by people who can bring different conversations in. We are not a monarchy. We are not a system that is stuck in place. We are a system that's ever changing. So I don't think we can fix these things in one year or two years. I think we can make things better, Man, How are we going to fix these things? When in 20 years, we look at a whole new generation. And that's the game I'm playing. That's why I'm a historian. That's why I write books. That's why I teach. Because I want us to be better, much better, 20 years from now. And it's the 20-year-olds in my class that when they're 40, are going to have the opportunity to do that. Democracies remade every generation, and your students have the chance to make that difference, to remake it. That also seems like something that our founders would deeply appreciate. The founders, to me, seem to be pretty entrepreneurial, innovative individuals. Like, I can't imagine George Washington being like, I want you to think exactly the way I think right now, because I feel like he would support this notion that we got to critique the flaws. We have to appreciate the place. You have to appreciate me. But at the same time, you know, I had some issues here because I'm a humble person. That's what I talked about as I gave up power. That seems to there seems to be a patriotic element to what you're saying. Absolutely. It seems like that's the sentiment of the founders. Absolutely. And and I really uh, liked the way you used humility there. They had the humility, even though they had done what none of us have done, right? They overthrew an empire, built a new society, but they didn't think they had all the answers. And here's the most important thing. They didn't think they had the right to power forever. We have become a culture. It's not just in the U.S. at all, but a culture that hoards power. Right. We want to pass it on. I'll admit, I feel this urge myself with my own kids. Right. I want them to have the things I worked hard for without having to work as hard. And I want them then to have more. Right. Um, but the humble person says, no, it's not mine to pass on. That's why George Washington is such a good example. That's why Thomas Jefferson believed we should have radicalism and revolutionary change every 20 years or so. He meant as the generations change, new ideas should come in. The founders did not believe they had all the answers. They did not believe they were writing a document that would tell us what to do 200 years later. They were creating a framework and a conversation. And that conversation evolves similar issues new answers for each generation. And I think it, it it's almost this 
fascinating thought of remake, change, progress are not doing away with the founding. And this is not progress and remaking in the progressive or liberal or democratic sense. It is evolution should not be perceived as anti-patriotic. Evolution, in fact, is a deep reverence for the history of our country, right? It, it almost seems like um, the act of thinking about how we as a society can get better so that we can be the best we can possibly be seems to be a fundamentally Washingtonian, Jeffersonian, Hamiltonian concept. Absolutely. And your evolutionary metaphor is perfect. In a sense, they were anticipating Darwin. Uh, we have institutions, Manu, that in the last hundred years, we have not allowed them to evolve. They have been constrained because we've been afraid. It's time for a new generation to say, let's experiment, going back to this notion of a great experiment, and open up these institutions. I don't have the answer for what should replace the Electoral College. But I know as a historian that the founders never intended for it to be in existence as long as it has been and to do the things it's done, to create a system where often someone will be elected president. It could be the reverse of what we've seen recently in the future, who doesn't actually have anywhere near the most votes or a House of Representatives that hasn't increased its size, even as our population has doubled or territories. This would have really astounded the founders, territories like Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico that have millions of people and have no representation. Uh, no one thinks that's right, but we haven't done anything. We've prevented evolution. We've put, we've like the you know ancient Chinese, we've bound the feet of our children because we're afraid to see what will happen if we let their feet grow. Uh, it's time that we allow growth and evolution. And as folks know, you know, as we have these conversations, again, I'm less interested in the specificity of proposals. Like, again, we're not going to touch Puerto Rico. The point here is that Jeremy and I and all of us in the hopeful majority are outlining a way to think, a way to think that is a way out of what we think is that outrage industrial complex. I want to ask you two questions that now seem totally random um, uh, because there is no way to transition to them. But I think they're just fascinating questions given how cool of a background you have. But before I just get to those, one thing that I want to underscore that you're articulating here again is there's a way to critique that is fundamentally patriotic and there's a way to admire that is fundamentally critique. You know, there is no reason why we have to live in this binary and, and we as the audience and we as normal people have the chance to change that. Two very random questions. One is you've spent a lot of time thinking about Henry Kissinger. You spent a lot of time uh, uh, thinking about him, writing about him. Uh, have you spent in-person time with him? Yeah, we've had about a dozen meetings and then I've seen him in groups off and on through the years. Um, it's been a it's probably been about a year and a half since I've seen him now. But but quite often we have been together and we had about 12 one on one meetings. Don't worry, I've never met him. So you 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 won that round of 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 coolness. But I got to yes, ask, you know, some would say that makes me a worse person for spending time with him. So, well, <laughs> well, let's actually go, let, just really quickly. The question I have is from spending all that time. Uh, what's your biggest takeaway? Oh, gosh. Um, I know that's a tough it's, it's a tough one to put. It's a tough question. It's very broad. What but. struck me most when I wrote this book about him, which is really about his intellectual development and his contributions, good and bad, to how we think about uh, America's place in the world, uh, is that actually most of his thinking was not original. There is a genius, just what we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes. There's a genius that he has in bringing contradictory ideas together. 
and getting people in the world of policy, not always in the public as a whole. You never ran for electoral office, but in the policy world, Democrats and Republicans to work together. And he empowered himself as that bridge figure. That's my argument in the book, that he's the outsider who becomes an insider as a bridge figure. Well, we look forward to uh, Mr. Kissinger being a bridge brand ambassador. We don't like tunnels here, just bridges. And just so you know, and nobody has any idea about that joke because we've let, yet to actually bring in Bridge USA as a concept into this show. <laughs> but putting putting that aside for a second, the second random question I have to ask you is you spent a lot of time in higher ed. You're currently a professor at UT Austin. Um, what is your general opinion on just the state of higher education? You know, a lot of folks uh, think that uh, it's, it's fundamentally becoming more illiberal. There's, there's no chance for free dumb expression ideas. There's a whole nother set of people that say that it's on the right track, that in fact, we need to be making some challenges and critiques based on this conversation. I have a feeling that neither of those are hundred percent right. Um, but what is your perspective and take on the state of higher education? I think the uh, higher education system we have in the United States, although flawed is one of the best things we do in the United States. And I'm not the only one who believes that. People in every other part of the world believe that, right? Where you and I come from in India, people are, you know, basically giving up body organs to try to have a chance to send their grandchild to one of our universities. Um, and what do our universities do really well? They offer opportunity for hardworking young people who are willing to try things and open their minds to create entirely new lives for themselves. You can be from an Indian village and come to the University of Illinois in Champaign, and you can actually become a scholar of Greek philosophy or a scholar of uh, whatever subject or become an engineer. They open up opportunity that no other institution in the world opens. And you don't have to be going to an elite university for that. You can be going to a state university. You can be going to all kinds of uh, really great institutions that, that don't always have the same name credentials as, as some other places. Second thing our system does is it provides resources for people to do that. There is a student loan crisis, but the student loan crisis is people who don't finish. If you finish, if you get your degree, you actually do very well and you don't have trouble paying back your loans. Uh, our system does that well. And then the third thing I'll say is I've been around professors for well, more than 20 years. I've been one for 20 years. Uh, professors are trying harder than ever, not just to do their research, but to educate a new generation to care and to be broad minded. Very few professors are indoctrinating. I can tell you that from years of experience traveling the country, professor, uh, institution to institution. What are the challenges we face? Well, one is there are people politically on the left and right who see universities as easy targets because they're rich and because not everyone gets what they want. And second, our universities are run by administrators who sometimes are out of touch with the mission. You want to know my real critique of my university, University of Texas at Austin, which is a great university, one of the truly great public universities. We're also one of the best endowed universities in the world. What's my big critique? Well, we spend too much time on sports, not enough time on other things that should matter. I'm a sports fan. But if you look at how the leaders of my university and comparable universities spend their time, it's around managing sports. That's not our primary goal. We've lost our sense of mission at times, but we're not these horrible places. There's no place in the United States or the world that has as much free speech as a university. Doesn't mean we aren't flawed at times. Sometimes student groups can be a little um, intolerant. Sometimes administrators can be intolerant. 
But in general, we do a very good job of providing opportunity and open-minded education to people. No one does it better. The only times we don't do it well is when we take our own eye off the ball and we focus on sports or building or mega donors rather than what our core mission is. Our universities are still the root of our democratic ideal. I know I got to let you go. I've got two last questions because this conversation is so fascinating mentioned the importance of humility. You mentioned this notion that universities are core to our democratic ideals. One of the values that we've talked about is how you often self-critique to get better. Is there something that you feel you might have been wrong on in your career or a certain idea that you feel like you've changed your mind on? And the reason I'm asking that question is because it'll lead into the last piece, which is this notion of generational change. It seems like humility is an important value. What do you feel like is something that you might want to get, you you feel like you've just uh, gotten wrong? There have been so many things I've gotten wrong, Manu. Let me start there and let me admit that some of the things I've gotten wrong are things I did a lot of research on, and I thought I had them right. Uh, I spent a lot of time writing in my book about Kissinger, my book about nation building, how the United States, at the very least, as flawed as we were, I thought we had stable democratic institutions. I took the stability of our institutions for granted. I wrote the new book, Civil War by Other Means, because I was wrong. Our institutions were much more precarious. Voting was much more precarious. The belief in democracy itself uh, was much more precarious in our society than I realized it was. Now, I still think our institutions are generally stable, and I still think our democratic ideals are generally operable, uh, but they were much more uh, precarious and much more threatened than I realized in my prior research. I took that for granted. And and in a sense, this new book I've written is a kind of mea culpa. Uh, We're not supposed to admit as tenured professors that we can be wrong, but, but my fundamental assumptions were wrong. Last question. By the way, that's a funny thing to clip on. We're wrong. Um, I I gotta ask you a a last, last question. Ask every guest this. You've kind of touched on this a little bit. Um, but a big part of hope is having the answer to the question. Why everybody's got their own, why everybody's got their own purpose for you personally, it could be anything. Um, what would you say or articulate at this moment is your why? Oh, my why is a very simple one. It's been the same one most of my life, which is I'm the child of immigrants. Um, I get to do something no one in my family could ever imagine. Most still don't understand what it is uh, that I do. What's my why? Uh, it's creating opportunities for people like me and like others for generation after generation. I, I think the secret to democracy and prosperity is giving new talent from new places opportunities it wouldn't have otherwise. I think there's always pushback against that. And I'm I, I'm fascinated by how it's worked, how it hasn't worked, and how it can work in the future. Jeremy, Professor Suri, thank you so much for your time. I know that we learned a lot from it. Uh, where can we find you? I know that you and your son, Zachary, who's now off to Yale, run an amazing podcast. Could you just tell everybody the name of that podcast, importantly, where folks can find you? Sure. Uh, So the podcast is called This Is Democracy, and it's available on all podcast uh, platforms. I also have a a webpage that has all my writings and various things on it. Jeremy Suri, J-E-R-E-M-I-S-U-R-I dot net. And that's kind of the gateway to my babblings and rantings and all kinds of places. (laughs) Jeremy, thank you for your time. And I know as the show keeps growing, we're going to have you back to just ask deeper questions. Thank you, sir. Manu, I enjoyed that conversation so much and congratulations to you on all the work you're doing.
Well, that's a wrap on hopeful majority number three. Thank you to Professor Suri. Thank you for joining us. And most importantly, remember, we're going to come at you again next week with an amazing guest, Isabel Brown, conservative influencer and somebody that's thought about the future of conservatism. If you like the show, like, subscribe on YouTube, leave a review if you're on Apple or Spotify. And remember, we are trying to fight outrage and build nuance. And that's why we need you to support the show so that we can keep bringing content that challenges the binaries of today's thinking. Let's get on to next week. See you then.